As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just You're gotta get to up. You're listening to the Tom Fitchin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, just before we went on air, we were discussing history to some degree, and this is the end of Black History Month, but I call uh, this month actually Black History Month, Black Her Story Month, uh, because again, how do we kind of understand our collective kind of commitment and not be distracted by words um, and, and just understand how the spirit is moving. Today, we're going to be not necessarily metaphorical, but really talk about uh, history and her story, not in terms of folks that are on the planet today uh, and in terms of uh, honoring our ancestors. But what about the, our, 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 our future family, the, the future collective family of mankind? How do we kind of decide that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be available to all moving forward? Specifically, we're going to talk about, if not a solution, a collective solution, or what, what happens, how do we kind of create and establish a collective solution to Alzheimer's disease? Uh, today, we call it Alzheimer's disease or dementia, and tomorrow we might call it something else. But the fact remains that people are living longer, and uh, believe it or not, over 6 million people uh, currently are living with Alzheimer's disease. So certainly, if you're listening to this show, you know someone, someone that you know knows someone that's been afflicted. and But more importantly, this is a proactive show about the future. Uh, what is the, the impact of clinical research and science and the science of discovery? And we're so blessed to have Dr. Ryan O'Dell with us. Dr. Ryan O'Dell is a doctor assistant professor at the Yale Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit, Department of Psychiatry, Yale University School of Medicine. We're blessed to have Vanessa Clayton, Community Diversity Engagement Research Associate at the Yale Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit, Department of Psychiatry. Yale University School of Medicine, and we're joined by Reverend Dr. Leroy O. Perry, Jr., pastor of St. Stephen's AME Church and, and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program, and Reverend Elvin Clayton, pastor of Walters Memorial AME Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Welcome and good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. And so, again, just before we jump in with Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry to kind of share with us some, some, some thoughts and, and, to, and to establish us in terms of this historical, historical perspective. Just let me just say, this is a tremendous show about solutions, collective solutions. We don't have to just honor or pray, but we can take prayerful action and faith in our actions. Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, uh, kick us off a little bit about the, uh, we know that folks are living longer and what it might take, uh, uh, this impact of this, of this, this disease and, and how we can kind of challenge people and, and make sure that uh, that we're not overlooked and lost lost in the shuffle, so to speak. Thank you, Tom. I uh, I think this is very a very important show for us um, because a lot of our seniors are facing um, early stages of Alzheimer's. Um, I think this show will enlighten our our uh, audience with regards to risk factors, environmental and genetic, and and possibly point to new therapies that are available. And this information doesn't normally get to our community, mm -hmm. so I'm very happy that uh, that uh, Ryan and and um, 
Vanessa are here to kind of wade us through this this uh, this maze because yeah, it is really right. difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. Reverend Clayton. Thank you, Tom. And uh, I was looking and I heard your your first thought or your first question that that, that word was overlooked. The challenges of our seniors that make sure they're not overlooked and, yes. and and one of the ways that we make sure that doesn't happen that we got to be in close contact with them visit them often if you have a, a parent that doesn't live with you you got to make sure someone is visiting them often daily mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, also you got to make sure they're up to date with their meds because sometimes mm -hmm. an older person may not take the medications and uh, make sure they're eating properly and you may have to do some things that they may not want, like taking their <laughs> the, the car away. You know, mm -hmm. all of these things are, are are part of what we need to do to make sure that they're not overlooked and abused. Watch their money. Uh, check out their finances. So that's where my head is with this area. Right. Ab absolutely, absolutely. Just what you mentioned, a few, few uh, friends crossed uh, my consciousness just as you were speaking that who, who the family members had to act in the way that you just suggested. Dr. Odell, good, good morning. Uh, uh, kick us off a little bit more about the, your work as a researcher and actually how, if, if you don't mind, how, you've, how you became an interest in, in this research of this really challenging, but so impactful uh, uh, area of clinical study. And, and if, if I can just throw in why it's uh, personally important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks, Tom. Um, so, I, so a little bit of you know, background for me. Um, I, I did my medical school and graduate training in, in SUNY Upstate Medical University, so out in Syracuse, New York. Um, I, I was there for almost a decade doing this training, and I did um, my PhD training in, in basic science research, um, more in the field of developmental neurobiology. It was a lot of microscope work, um, you know, studying the effect of certain proteins on mouse brain development. So you know, really nothing to do with Alzheimer's disease or, or clinical trials at all. But, um, you know, as I went through medical school, I found I really was interested in all things psychiatry. You know, I liked all the rotations, child psychiatry, consult services, inpatient, outpatient, but really, you know, took a shining to, um, you know, geriatric psychiatry and specifically, you know, geriatric psychiatry in the context of, of a cognitive disorder such as Alzheimer's disease. And um, the more I learned about it, the more I realized how much of a you know need there was, um, not just from a clinical perspective, but a research perspective. We need to better understand the disease process, what drives it, what causes it, um, but also try to develop you know more you know efficacious treatments, things that that work you know to actually halt or at least slow the progression. So. Um, you know, with that in mind, I, I joined the psychiatry residency program at Yale um, here from 2017 to about 2021. Um, and that's when I started working with uh, Dr. Christopher Van Dyke and Dr. Adam Mecca, you know, here at the Yale Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit. And, you know, they really gave me the, the time and opportunity to kind of shift gears completely and, and start working on, you know, you know, learning more about brain imaging studies and clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. Um, so then I finished the residency training, did a fellowship in geriatric psychiatry, which is, you know, here in, in New Haven, based primarily out of the West Haven VA, um, continued to work with the, the ADRU, um, you know, in the field of Alzheimer's disease. And then finally, after 15 years of training, um, you know, started here as faculty, um, you know, this past July 2022 um, as a geriatric psychiatrist and, and cognitive disorder specialist. So, 
you know, I will, I really, I do have to say, you know, my decision to completely shift gears from basic science research to, you know, clinical trials and Alzheimer's disease is one, you know, that's been very fulfilling. You know, I don't regret it at all. Um, you know, I said earlier, this is, there's a really, you know, big or huge unmet need in this field that we're all working towards. And, yes. you know, I've really enjoyed all my interactions with the research participants, my clinical patients, their families, you know, caregivers, you know, this, this is a disease that affects not just the person, but the family, the community, the healthcare system, you know, in a lot of significant ways. Um, so something I'm really passionate about. Absolutely. And just, just before, and we are going to delve into the AHEAD research program and how and studying how folks can kind of get involved with that. And, but, but Vanessa, kind of same, same general question. Uh, how did you decide to kind of get, get involved with this really significant and impactful research? First of all, thank you for inviting us and um, highlighting this important issue. Uh, I could say that I am now part of the older population, so I think I need to stay on top of everything that's affecting senior citizens, but not all only right. for myself. Yeah. for my family, my friends, the communities I serve. Um, I've been involved in other clinical trials over the mm. years. and But this is an opportunity, I think, to be in the forefront of making an impact on the Black and brown communities. However, now this disease does not just affect the older population. Mm -hmm. I lost a very um, dear classmate who developed early onset Alzheimer's in his 50s and passed away at age 63. Mm. Uh, so hopefully the results of this study can also go a long way to prevent Alzheimer's disease somehow or, or have an impact on the younger population as well. So when I heard about the position, coupled with my science teaching background and mm. my work with community um, outreach, I thought I could be effective and make a difference. Excellent. And, and Dr. Odell, before we go into the, the AHEAD study, just... Uh... Let's give us a little context, because again, although the word, people have heard the word, and, but I don't think we can, uh, it would be remiss not to give people a little more context about the, the disease and how it develops, because again, it's an evolving kind of situation, uh, early warning signs, et cetera. So share with us a little bit about the, your understanding of the, of the disease and, and, and how it develops. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, that's a very, you know, big and important question. And, you know, there's a, a bunch I can cover here. So just jump in, you know, let me know if I'm talking too much, and okay. you know, we need to move on. But, you know, I would start out with a, you know, brief definition, um, you know, that we, Alzheimer's disease is defined as, you know, a slowly progressive neurodegenerative disease that causes decline in, in people's cognition. So their memory and thinking, and, and their function, you know, their ability to live independently and complete, you know, daily tasks. Um, it is the most common form of dementia um, or common type of dementia. And as you mentioned, there's over 6 million Americans currently diagnosed. And unfortunately, as the you know, population ages, that number is projected to more than double to about 13.8 million people living with Alzheimer's disease by about mm. the year 2060 is, is mm. the estimate we currently have. Um, and I'd also say maybe here's a good place to pause and point out a few definitions. Like these are things that come up pretty frequently in the clinic and in the research environment. You know, somebody might come in and say, you know, one doctor said I had a diagnosis of dementia um, or my loved one has a diagnosis of dementia. Somebody else says I have Alzheimer's disease. You know, what, what's going on? What's the difference? Um, so just to point out here, dementia um, is not a specific disease, um, but it's what we call a syndrome or a group of symptoms that typically kind of occur together. Um, and the technical diagnosis, you know, for, for dementia is, is characterized by these objective, you know, measurable impairments in cognition that could be 
memory, language, you know, judgment, problem solving, you know, really any aspect of, of cognition mm -hmm. that of course represents a decline from previous levels of functioning, but also interferes with somebody's ability to function independently. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, that could manifest as maybe needing assistance with driving, managing bills, medications, you know, those sort of things. Um, and maybe another term to point out here, which we might, you know, throw around today or other listeners have heard is called mild cognitive impairment um, mm -hmm. or MCI. Um, so mild cognitive impairment, I think of, you know, with mild cognitive impairment and dementia as a spectrum with MCI being a little bit earlier on that spectrum. And technically, you know, a diagnosis of, of mild cognitive impairment, um, you know, is defined as having those same objective deficits or impairments in cognition, similar to that, you know, criteria for dementia but the person is still, the individual is still fully functional and independent with all their you know, aspects of daily living. So that's kind yeah. of some differences in, in some technical terms that might get thrown around, mm -hmm. uh, but kind of getting back to Alzheimer's disease. So if somebody has a diagnosis of this mild cognitive impairment or dementia, the next logical question might be, well, what's causing this diagnosis? What's causing my memory and thinking changes? And, and that's where Alzheimer's disease comes in. Um, Alzheimer's disease is the potential cause or what we call etiology of the cognitive and functional impairment of the dementia. Um, and as I mentioned before, it is the most common cause of dementia, but there's many other things that, that specialists need to think about that could be, you know, contributing to the symptoms depending on, you know, presenting signs. There's things like vascular brain disease, you know, Parkinson's disease can cause dementia, something mm. called Lewy body disease, a whole host mm. of things mm. and things we really need to think about. But mm. um, maybe a little more information on Alzheimer's disease specifically, you know, you noted it's just characteristically at least a disease of, you know, older age on an, in fact, age is the largest risk factor to developing Alzheimer's disease. And there's sort of late onset forms um, where the symptoms start after the age of 65. And as Vanessa mentioned, early onset, where just symptoms happen before the age of 65. Right. Um, and let's see a few, I think maybe a few other helpful pieces. Um, uh, I would say, well, actually maybe the, the last, maybe most important thing to talk about here, you know, in relation to the rest of today's talk, um, you know, the pathology, what's driving, you know, yes. the, the, the Alzheimer's disease um, and we call neurodegeneration or, or cell death. Um, so, so Alzheimer's disease, we typically are characterized by or is characterized by the accumulation of two different, um, you know, proteins by amyloid plaques and tau tangles. Those are, again, some words people might hear thrown around plaques and tangles. And so these are two proteins that accumulate or aggregate in the brain and cause the neuronal um, injury and or brain cell death and injury. And, and the amyloid protein is accumulating outside of the brain cells, while the aggregated tau protein is accumulating, you know, within the neurons. So this is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a, a double whammy. There's, there's damage happening from both sides, both within and outside of these, these brain cells. And I think this is important to point out because a lot of the ongoing clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease, including the AHEAD study, you know, that we're talking about today are trying to use drugs to target either these amyloid plaques or these tau tangles for removal and clearance from the brain. You know, they're essentially trying to remove these sources of, of neuronal toxicity and damage um, in an effort to treat the disease. Excellent, excellent. And we are gonna to go to the AHEAD study because it just, just occurred to me, Reverend Clayton and Reverend, Reverend Perry and Vanessa, as we, every show that we've done in terms of the cultural ambassadors has been a historical show but it, it dawns on me that we, we're trying to recruit people who uh, participate in clinical studies. But that, that's, that's, everyone might not be able to write a history book or be an author or give a speech, but you can participate in history by participating in these clinical trials. You, in fact, 
can be an agent of change by participating in clinical trials. You can make history, but uh, just before we go to the head study, Dr. Odell, just share with us also in terms of any, um, and I know it might be somewhat subjective or speculative, but early warning signs. Are there any early warning signs of Alzheimer's? And again, uh, again, I, I realize you might be hesitate, hesitating to specifically answer that question because people might accuse, oh, my, my wife, my husband, or people might, might throw, throw around this, this accusation uh, and part of their uh, uh, arguments with people. But are there any early warning signs of Alzheimer's that we should be aware of? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is a great question. And, um, you know, I think I may have alluded to earlier, the most common presenting symptom of Alzheimer's disease is, is changes in memory and thinking. And it's primarily memory. Memory is that first, you know, aspect or domain of cognition. You know, it's not always the first one, but it's the most common one that's affected first in Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, common symptoms that, that people might notice are increasing forgetfulness, increasing repetitiveness, maybe repeating or forgetting conversations from earlier that day or the previous day, uh, maybe losing items around the house like wallet, keys and papers, you know, pretty consistently. And as I kind of mentioned before, this should be a change from a previous, you know, level of performance, mm. you know, something mm -hmm. new or concerning. Um, and, and although the memory or these amnestic, you know, symptoms are the most common or typical, there's definitely other, you know, cognitive domains that can be affected. Some, a lot of times people were, will experience language changes, trouble finding the right word, um, some, some sort of fancy neurological term called circumlocution, using a lot of words to talk around an answer in a kind of vague way, um, where you're not really sure you got the answer to a direct question by the end of it. I thought that was. Um, you know, I thought. I thought. Oh, that's what politicians do. It is. It's a legal term. Yep. It is. Okay. Yep. Right, I'm, I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. No, no, no. That's, it is a yes, yeah, a legal term, but it's. It's also can happen with neurodegenerative changes as well, as long as it's not you know intentional. Um, and and so other people might experience difficulty keeping track of events like dates, appointments, medications. You know, managing those maybe increase trouble with navigation, um, but maybe in the earlier stages of Alzheimer's disease, those navigation or orientation difficulties are more seen in uncommon locations. Like I'm driving to a new city I've never been to, you know, not typically getting lost in familiar local neighborhoods. That might happen later on in the, the disease course, but not early on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, some other, you know, informal things we use in the clinic. If somebody's working, you know, I always ask about. You know, are you having increasing trouble at work, um, you know, struggling with things that you've always been able to do, you know, pretty quickly and efficiently that now, you know, are a little more concerning to you, maybe trouble with technology like phones and computers. You know, I used to be a software designer, a computer whiz, and now I'm struggling to use software I've used for the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, and, and maybe the last thing I, I would point out there. Um, or here in terms of, you know, things to look for or talk about in terms of Alzheimer's disease and memory changes, I would say it affects short-term memory first. Um, you know, that's why we ask about rapid forgetting, you know, of recently learned or new information that increased mm -hmm. repetitiveness. Um, you know, and as the disease progresses, the longer-term memories, things from 10, 20, 40 years ago, childhood memories, um, those are affected much later in the disease process. And I, I only bring this up as an important point in the clinic, I might often hear, you know, a family might a family member might not necessarily be concerned about a loved one's memory because they're saying, well, they still recognize me. They still recognize the family members, even though they're not, you know, even though they are having rapid forgetting or maybe can't use their phone. And I think it's just an opportunity to to provide some, you know, information or psychoeducation about how the disease process works. It affects, 
you know, the short-term memory first and kind of moves backwards in time. So those longer memories from, from childhood or remembering your spouse or, or children, those things are not affected, you know, at least early on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say just in terms of maybe the warning signs, when to, to reach, you know, reach out for help or support, um, you know, you know, again, if there's any of these short-term changes in short-term memory, those repetitiveness, forgetfulness, that's a change from your, your baseline, your previous level of functioning, you know, I would recommend people reach out to their, say their primary care physician, their PCP for, for help. The PCP may directly refer them, you know, to somebody like me, a cognitive disorder specialist. They may collect a little more information about the nature of the symptoms, get some examples, maybe do a brief lab workup. Um, but, but I would say, you know, that, that would be, um, you know, one opportunity, if you have concerns, you know, reach out to your physician and if they're not sure they would certainly, or should certainly, you know, refer you to a memory specialist and we'd be able to tease out, like you mentioned, there, there are actually expected changes as we age, you know, it's not fair to compare our memory in our 60s, 70s, 80s to when we're mm. 20 or 30. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the memory, memory specialist can be helpful. Is this consistent with what we call normal cognitive aging? or healthy cognitive aging, or something more pathological, like Alzheimer's disease. Excellent. I have a question, Tom. I have a mm-hmm. question. Absolutely, sir. Yes, sir. Um, um, Dr. Odell mentioned that, that over 6 million Americans uh, had has been diagnosed or have Alzheimer's. And I would imagine that as they get older, it probably gets worse. But I, I read that Blacks are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's uh, and dementia as, as, as our white brothers and sisters. Can you kind of tell us why or do you know why that's the case? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. And, and I know um, a very helpful resource that I've found is the Alzheimer's Association. They come out with this sort of facts and figures report every year with you know prevalence and incidence and demographic information. And you're right, one of the, the figures they quote is, you know, Blacks and African Americans are twice as likely to have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or another dementia. Um, you know, Hispanic populations are one and a half times more likely. And mm-hmm. the, the real unfortunate thing is despite this higher prevalence in these communities, they're actually less likely to be diag- formally diagnosed. And they're diagnosed at later stages when there's more physical and cognitive impairment so there's there's like a you know a double double inequity there, mm. Um, mm. but in terms of what's causing it, I think that's less clear. I know initially you know the field kind of um, you know pointed to genetics um, at first. There there's a certain gen, a gene a, a risk gene called the ApoE4 gene um, that's a little more prevalent. Um, you can have one or two copies, and the more copies you have, the more likely you are to develop Alzheimer's disease than somebody with no copies of this risk gene. And for whatever reason, there's a few studies that point to say the, the, the black population has a little higher incidence or prevalence of this risk gene than say their white counterparts. But that, that sort of theory has been largely debunked, I think. And you know, the genetics cannot explain fully this difference. So one of my thoughts is um, you know, honestly sort of you know, racialized inequities in healthcare. Um, and one of that is because there's vascular risk factors, right? There's these high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, these are all risk factors for something mm. we call vascular dementia, but they're mm. also risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are those are medical diagnoses that are more common in upper under underrepresented groups. But I don't think it's because there's an inherent genetic or ethnic or racial difference. I think it's because of a, you know, a history of, you know, medical racism and, you know, in, inequal access to health care 
that put these populations at this to have these higher risk factors that then as they age increases the risk of alzheimer's disease so that's another you know theory as to why there's you know you know twice the amount of of, of people diagnosed with with alzheimer's disease excellent and, and dr odell and vanessa because before we we have about 35 minutes that we can spend on the head study and we're going to really dive into that because again i guess i want to repeat folks can you can participate in history you can impact history and her her story and, and his story. But I just wanted to ask everyone before we, we, we go there, um, and we referenced it a little bit, but the, the stresses and challenges on the family and the community, it might be uh, sound repetitive, but I think it's really important to let everybody know that whether you're 10, 11, 12, 20, 30, you, you, can, you can help our families and our future families thrive and survive uh, by knowing this information and sharing this information. So I guess wonder, Reverend Perry, if you want to kick us off about the, the, the impact on loved ones and, and, your, and your family and your church and your organizations, uh, unless, unless we become more proactive. Thank you, Tom. I think that, um, Dr. Odell, what you're saying is what medical doctors are saying now about social determinants of health and how significant that is when we look at these outcomes, um, so it's kind of, you know, like if you look at sporadic Alzheimer's or if you look at familiar Alzheimer's, you you kind of caught in between. But what the social determinants of health does, I think it makes clear that you've got to look at all of the um, mm. components in order to arrive at a, at a, at a conclusion that, that makes sense. Otherwise, you're guessing <laughs> for the most part. I think that one of the problems we have with our with our community is um, access. So, for example, if I knew of a person that had all of the symptoms that are, that's listed on, on on the web and and from our conversation, getting them the help that they need is the difficult part. And and I think that what your study does for us, it helps us to be able to say, listen, there. There is a study out there, you may want to check with your doctor, but there is a study out there that may help you, your sister, your cousin, and everybody else. We just have to look at how it, um, how you can get in the study. What are the, what are the criteria? I, I, I think Vanessa had said one time that you, you wouldn't take anybody as old as Reverend Clayton or Reverend uh, or Tom Ficklin, but <laughs> I'm sure there might be some other studies that they could get into. I, I was going to challenge you, Doctor, to give uh, give Reverend Clayton and Reverend uh, and Tom a quick question just to see if they were mentally alert this morning. Indeed, but, uh, <laughs> I'm going to pass on that and let you tell us about this particular study that you're doing and the ramifications. If there's a cost included, if there are barriers to getting in the study and when the study begins and ends, I think that would help us all. Okay, let, let, let's, Dr. Odell, the, 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 gauntlet, the gauntlet has been passed to you. <laughs> all right. L lovingly, though, let me say lovingly and carefully, <laughs> but it's been, it's been and, and to, you, to you and Vanessa. <laughs> yes. And, and I, oh, go ahead, Vanessa, sorry. Well, first of all, the, that, Alzheimer's Association facts and figures tell us that only 35% of Blacks say they're even concerned about Alzheimer's mm. disease. Mm. But 65% say that they know someone with it. 
Um, <laughs> and again, half of the population thinks it's just a normal process of aging that really can't be helped or stopped. So that's the first um, kind of um, barrier um, mm. that just keeps people from wanting to get involved. We have to publicize these facts because of the normal of the abnormal number of blacks who have this disease we must search continue to search for the cause and the cure and make sure that the facts are given so that people will want to get ahead of this study and that's exactly Vanessa, what the study Vanessa, is about. I want to ask you this when you say the 35% are not concerned do you think that that 35% of people who really have no clue is like if you think that you're healthy <laughs> and you can go to work and you can come home and you can feed your family. Do you think I have time to figure out unless I got some symptoms that make me want to reassess mm -hmm. where I am right now? And I think that that is what I mean. And, and, and I think for black populations, that's the case on a lot of things. It's like my father never stopped to go and get checked until he really had to. We never went to the emergency right. room until we needed to. Whereas the, our white co um, our counterparts. They got regular checkups and their doctors spent time with them on different things. We go in, we get seen for eight seconds, eight minutes, and then we're gone. This is a this is a systemic problem. And it I is. think that we've got to we got to deal with that. And that, that's what happens with especially with older Americans who are living alone, staying alone. I can speak from personal um perspective. We took in um, my uncle. Uh, at age 86, just before COVID shut down, he lived alone. He had significant health issues, but he didn't have any dementia, thank God. We were able to take him in and care for him and take him to his appointments. Whereas in, in the past, he said, oh, yeah, I go to this doctor and he we, we sit around and talk about baseball. He checks my blood pressure and listens to my heart and sends me home. Well, no. Now that I'm here and taking you, we'll ask a lot of questions. And we went to every specialist, the neurologists and all the specialists and, you know, went through the process. But prior to that, he wasn't really honing in on his issues. Now, if he had had dementia, now he was able to interact with the family. Um, once COVID kind of uh, opened things up, uh, once things opened up again, he was able to travel with us. He participated in family functions, went to church. But if he had had dementia, none of that would have been possible. We would not have been able to care for him. Um, even with the home health aides that came in would not have been enough. It's such a debilitating disease. And by the time you recognize that you have it, it's almost too late. And so that's why getting ahead of it early on is so important. And COVID didn't help. No, that didn't help. not at all. So, so that's the cue, Dr. Odell and Vanessa. Walk us down the ahead study because I love I love the the, uh, the acronym A H E A D uh, rather than just being re reactive or uh, putting putting our heads in the sand. This is a perspective study. So tell us about the, the head study. We have 20, 25 minutes or so to really take the deep dive, and as Reverend Perry mentioned, to share with people how they can get involved and whether there's any compensation, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, yeah, maybe I can take the sure. um, the first part about you know what what sort of the study is is looking to investigate and and I think before I jump into the ahead study, I just want to take one minute to maybe back up a little bit and introduce a different study you know that's going to help clarify I think the, oh, the purpose good. and goals of ahead. So um, the study I'm talking about actually the the results of a large phase three clinical trial called Clarity AD. 
um, that investigated the use of an amyloid clearing, clearing antibody called lecanemab. That's the name of the drug we're going to be talking about, you know, in symptomatic stages of Alzheimer's disease. So people with mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia, the results of this study was recently published and had positive results. It was a one and a half year study um, conducted in participants between the age of 50 and 90 years old who were in those early symptomatic stages. So they had memory and thinking symptoms and it was due to Alzheimer's disease. They had those elevated levels of amyloid plaque in the brain. So that they received these infusions of lecanemab or placebo um, every two weeks for the year and a half. And the study showed that this lecanemab medication slowed the rate of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease by about 27% and also reduced the levels of that brain amyloid. So it demonstrated, a, I'd say, a clear yet modest clinical benefit. And because of those findings, you know, the, the, the sponsor, the pharmaceutical company has, you know, the FDA actually approved this medication um, for clinical use mm. under their accelerated pathway. So not a traditional pathway, but an accelerated pathway this past January and they're mm. currently applying for traditional approval. So, so that's the background, but moving ahead, ahead to the AHEAD study, <laughs> um, you know, this is a, a four-year clinical trial. Um, so instead of one and a half years, it's four years, and we're testing whether the intervention of removing or clearing this amyloid protein using lecanemab prior to the onset of any symptoms could help prevent future memory loss and dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, of course, that means the intervention here that we're using in a head is the same FDA approved medication, this lecanemab that I just described that showed efficacy in, in symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Um, but now it's being studied in the earlier pre-symptomatic stages of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, the participants who are enrolling and potentially eligible for this study have no objective impairments. They may have some subjective concerns. They may have a family history, but they have no measurable impairments on tests of memory and thinking, i.e. they might be what we call cognitively normal or healthy cognition. Um, but, um, you know, they have elevated levels of amyloid in their brain. Um, one of these pathologic proteins that's accumulating that puts them at future risk for developing symptomatic Alzheimer's disease. And so that, and that's what, again- what, what, the, what, yeah. age group, what age group again is eligible? I believe age for-, for 55 to 80 for this study. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Yep, 50, so 55 to 80. And, and that's usually this, the name of, that's where the, again, the, the ahead you know, name comes from. We're trying to get ahead of Alzheimer's disease and you know, remove and clear this plaque uh, before it can potentially cause any, any clinical symptoms. Um, and, and I guess maybe a little more information about the, you can get into some specifics. Um, you know, I would say, um, you know, it's actually made up of two different studies, this one ahead study. So the A3 and the A45 arm. And so participants who, who meet eligibility criteria, which we can talk more about the details of that, are kind of put into one of two arms of the study. The A3 arm um, is made up of participants who have intermediate levels of brain amyloid. So they're not really high, but it's not negative. It's somewhere in between at an intermediate level. They receive monthly infusions of lecanemab versus placebo um, for four years. So once a month infusion for four years. And the goal with this A3 trial is to you know, intervene at the earliest possible stages of the disease process when this brain amyloid may be just beginning to accumulate. If somebody screens into the study and we find they have an elevated or a high amount of amyloid in the brain based on a PET scan, which I can talk about, they go into the, they're eligible for the A4-5 arm. And so that's again made up of participants with higher levels of brain amyloid, but are still testing in normal ranges on cognitive tests. 
And so they get infusions of lecanemab or, or placebo every two weeks for two years. And then at the two year halfway waypoint, they switch to monthly infusions for the last two years of the study. And I think maybe the last thing I'll point out here before we dive into more detail is, um, you know, it's important to just note, I keep saying lecanemab versus placebo. So this is a placebo controlled study. And what that means is that participants in both the A3, the intermediate level, and the A4-5, the elevated level of amyloid trials are randomly assigned, get a 50-50 chance to, to either receive this lecanemab, the study drug, or the placebo, no drug. Um, and because it's also what we call, you know, double blind, um, that means neither the participant, the person receiving the infusions, nor the investigators, you know, us, know what they're getting, whether they're getting placebo or the study drug until the end of the study when everything's unblinded. Um, so maybe let me pause there and see, Vanessa, if you have any, if you want to talk maybe about inclusion criteria, and I can kind of walk people through the, the screening process, maybe? Well, initially, um, again, if you're relatively healthy, and you're between that age group of 55 to 80, you do qualify to be um, for an intake. And we could even do that by telephone. Mm -hmm. um, once the intake, we get your medical history uh, and you know other information about yourself, your living conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Then we invite you in to be screened. And we go through the, and at that point they take they do a blood test, a urine test, um, and they get you set up for MRI and PET scan, and that's how that will determine those biomarkers, how much amyloid plaque is built up mm -hmm. in your brain. And, and uh, from and, that and point Vanessa, on, and Vanessa, yes. how does a person? I, I want you to mention it now. We'll mention it at the end of the show. How does a person explore, be, you know, signing up or being in touch with you guys? Their uh, telephone number and email address, et cetera. Um, organizations can invite me in to invite us in to do presentations mm -hmm. uh, the website uh, anything like that I'll give my phone numbers whenever you're ready please sh share it now and also share 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 it at the end not the number that 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 Reverend Clayton has but but your but your public number <laughs> he probably doesn't even have my office <laughs> number yet <laughs> <All right. laughs> because we communicate by cell phone, but All right. my um, my office number is right here, downtown New Haven is 203-764-5786. The main office number to get um, even more information or if I'm not available is 203-764-8100. My email address is vanessa.clayton at yale.edu. And there's a website, www.alzheimers.yale.edu. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I want to I want to ask a question about the placebo and the so it's a four-year study. Yes. If I'm getting a placebo that doesn't do anything, that, that means for four years my Alzheimer's is just gonna get worse and it's not gonna get better. Is that fair? <laughs> No, it's a it's a good question, and I, I think you know it's one of the you know difficulties of of designing these type of trials. I would say, um, you know, one thing is we don't know how much risk having elevated amyloid um, when you have no cognitive symptoms or memory symptoms confers. There's, I, I think, uh, in terms of de later developing symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, uh, there's 
there was um, a bunch of studies. I think they were autopsy studies. So people who died of other causes, not Alzheimer's disease. And then we can now, you know, do brain imaging and look for amyloid. I think they found in, in older adults, um, up to 30% of people um, who either, you know, died of, of some other disease process or of natural causes, um, who had no, um, you know, cognitive impairment, they had elevated, you know, amyloid levels. So the question is, if they have lived for another 10, 20 years, would they have developed symptoms? And, and we are, ha there's more and more evidence in the field, I would say, accumulating that you know, these, these amyloid plaques can be accumulating up to 20 years um, before the, the, the appearance of any, you know, uh, memory symptoms, like any objective memory decline. And we still don't know, although we're trying to investigate it with our observational studies, not a clinical trial, you know, having, you know, say, you know, high amyloid, but, and maybe one of these risk genes, you know, what sort of risk does that confer? It would be nice to eventually tell people what is your five year or 10 year, you know, risk of converting to having memory symptoms based on this brain scan and this genetic test, but, but we're just not there yet, unfortunately. And I think that's why they have to design the, you know, this placebo controlled study, which in some ways can be informative. The people who we eventually find out who are on placebo you know, how many of them, you know, you know, converted to having symptoms? Is it none? Is it 5%, 30%? Um, and, 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 you know, invariably, there's always what we call these open label extensions, you know, at the end of these clinical trials, where at some point, everybody just gets the study drug. Um, you know, there's no more placebo. And that's, you know, in my, you know, limited experience as a, you know, researcher in Alzheimer's disease, you know, most of these clinical trials have ended up in an open label extension where eventually everybody gets the study drug for another, you know, say year and a half, two years. So, so that may, um, you know, in some ways kind of, you know, not make up for, but kind of answer that question of, you know, there are some people who got the study drug and others didn't, but it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Yeah. Right. But remember, you have to be relatively healthy. You cannot have Alzheimer's in order right. to participate in this particular study. But you won't know that until you do the testing on what, well, what level the person is. So when, I could well, think I'm normal, but it's not until I go through all of the rigorous testing will I, will you have a, a knowledge? And then I, so when you do this testing, will I get this information? So that if I say, you know what? I think I just need to go and find me the best medicine or the best cognitive doctor right now so that I can, you know, maybe go that route. And the other question I had is when, when the study is over, it's like when the Pfizer study was over, everybody got the drug, everybody as it got to the end, when it was a, a world approved, everybody got the Pfizer yes. drug in the blind study. Everybody got it. So here's a question as, as ambassadors that we always really want to ask is like when the drug is approved, will it be available to the people in the study? And the other yeah. question is, how much will it cost other people? I know it takes a lot to do these studies. So, I mean, it could be out of my pocket range. I'm 80 years old. I'm on Social Security now. I know this drug helps me, but you're telling me the study is over and I can't afford the drug. Yeah, I would say there's a, so there's a lot of a lot of good points and questions there. I would I maybe mean, can speak to the uh, in terms of just the the financial cost. We have a little bit of um, you know evidence, I guess, from this other medication, a similar you know to this lecanemab medication. There's another one called aducanemab that was FDA approved for Alzheimer's use in, in symptomatic Alzheimer's disease back in June of 2021. Um, there was a lot of controversy around that one. That was technically the first one to be approved. 
But I think it started out at like, I don't know if it was $58,000 a year um, because the centers for Medicaid and Medicare, you know, the CMS, you know, said, we're not going to cover it. There needs more evidence. Um, and so it ended up being like one, you know, who can afford that, you know, it's like almost $60,000 a year. So they, they lowered it to twenty dollars to $28,000 a year, but still not covered by insurance. And I think what's going to happen is, you know, now that lecanemab has been approved um, through this accelerated pathway, there was another one that the FDA looked at but denied. Um, I think lecanemab is going to be approved through the traditional pathway. And then the CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, are going to have to reevaluate their statement that now we have this standard of care that they, you know, really need to consider hard about, you know, covering so it can be, you know, equitable to everybody because it's just, you're right, it's too expensive. Even at twenty eight thousand, that's still a, a crazy high, you know, price to pay out of pocket. Um, yes. And, and, going to the health food store. Reverend, Reverend, <laughs> Reverend, Reverend Perry raises a good question about this this dynamic between people versus profits, and that's part of our our economic system at the moment. Let me flip, ask the question a different way, um, Dr. Odell. If a blockbuster drug, if I participated in the study, passed a medical screening, and then a blockbuster drug appears on the market, am I eligible to take it? I would say yes, absolutely. And that, that would be unethical you know, of us as, right. as clinicians to deny the right. standard of care. And, and that's been you know, on our mind as a field since you know, aducanumab was approved in 2020, uh, June 2021. And we're really kind of pushing the sponsors, people who are designing these you know, up and coming clinical trials, not just the AHEAD study. You know, we've asked them, if lecanemab is FDA approved and clinically available, are, they gonna, are people going to be able to enroll in your study? Are you going to have an arm where somebody you know, is getting lecanemab plus your new study drug and people, you know, who don't want to take it clinically and on the study drug, you know, we really need to think about, you know, redesigning clinical trials. And, and I would say if maybe another way to answer that is if there was a situation where you're currently enrolled in a clinical trial and you're, you're not, you know, you don't know if you're on placebo or getting a study drug um, and lecanemab is FDA approved and can be prescribed by a memory specialist and you have symptoms, you know, if you meet criteria for it to be, to get it clinically, um, you know, we would, we would have to, we would want to tell you about yes. that and, you know, talk with you about, you know, if the study doesn't let you continue, what would you want to do? Should you drop out of the study and get the standard of care medication? You know, if for whatever reason that study said, no, you can't start this, you know, and be in our trial, then we would, you know, have an informed consent discussion with you and your study partner, you know, in terms of what we thought might be the best option for, for clinical care and standard of care. But yeah, there, there is no way it should be if it's, you know, readily available and affordable and accessible, you know, there's no way we should be denying that to people who are in clinical right. trials. Right. So doctor, the study that you're in now, the drug that you're using, uh, you're looking forward to effectively um, wipe out the, uh, the cells that may be damaging your brain? Uh, basically, so maybe not the cells, but the proteins that the cells are making the proteins, to get rid right. of the amyloid. Yep, and that's different from the drug that's out now. Um, no, they're actually the well. I guess um, you mean the aducanumab drug, the other one I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. They, they work the same way. They both are what we call, you know, monoclonal antibodies. You know, we use these monoclonal antibodies in cancers a lot to target specific cells you know, and cancer for, you know, the cancer cells for, for destruction. Um, but in this case, these antibodies are going into the brain and recognizing the amyloid protein and clearing it from the brain. So both, both aducanumab and lecanemab work the same way. They're both clearing plaque 
Um, wow. I would say from the evidence we have so far on both of them, you know, aducanumab is a, you know, once monthly infusion, whereas lecanemab, at least as of now in symptomatic Alzheimer's disease is every two weeks. So there's a difference there in terms of how much, how, how much time you need to come in and get infusions. They both have the same rate of slowing, 25 to, to 27% slowing of decline in Alzheimer's disease. So they both are doing you know, well, you know, about the same, I would say, in slowing the rate of decline. But from the evidence we have, there's actually, I think, less, it seems less side effects with lecanemab. So that may be an important you know, decision um, you know, in speaking to patients if both of these medications are available, what's right for you? Do you want the one where you have to come in once monthly or twice monthly? Would it be better to have the one with, you know, less side effects? Um, you know, so it, yeah, so they, they both work the same way, um, you know, and have a similar, you know, um, slowing of the disease process, but come with different side effect profiles and, um, uh, and uh, I guess how you, how you infuse the drug or sort of the protocol. Yeah. What are some of the side effects? Yeah. So the, I would say the, the most common side effects we see with both of these medications, maybe not unexpected or called infusion related side effects. So if somebody kind of has a reaction to the infusion itself, like an allergic reaction, which we can treat with, you know, Benadryl and Tylenol, um, they're typically, you know, benign. Um, but the, the, the most common side effects that we talk to people about, you know, if we were to prescribe this medication clinically, and also in the research study, we have in-depth discussions during the informed consent, you know, about them are called, they're, they're imaging findings. They're, the, the acronym is ARIA, A-R-I-A, so amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. Um, and they kind of come in two flavors. Um, one of them is ARIA-E or edema. So um, we've noticed in lecanemab, and I'm going to scroll down so I don't misquote the number, I think about 12% of people on the lecanemab study drug in the symptomatic you know, Alzheimer's disease experienced a little bit of what we call cerebro or cerebral edema, so brain swelling. Um, and then I think another 15 to 17 or actually 14% of people on lecanemab experienced small, what we call micro hemorrhages. So bleeds in the brain that were less than 10 millimeters. The vast majority, I think upwards of 70 to 80% of, of these findings were asymptomatic. That's why they call them the imaging findings. Nobody had any symptoms. You know, I, I'm going to make sure I can get you the exact number here so I don't misquote. Yeah, 78% with lecanemab who had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease were asymptomatic. We just found them on the brain imaging. 70% of them occurred within the first three months. So if they're gonna happen, they're gonna happen early. And then about 81% of them resolved. So the brain swelling went away and there were no more you know, brain bleeds after four months of detection. And we have you know, very strict protocols in place to monitor for these. You know, we check in about symptoms, the most common symptoms, if somebody had that minor swelling, might be headaches, vision changes, confusion. So we're checking in with people, you know, you know, clinical check-ins during the research study. And if I was prescribing it, I'd be doing that too, you know, checking in to make sure you're not experiencing side effects. And then there's MRIs pretty frequently throughout the study. Um, I think, you know, at baseline, at month two and month three after the infusions, then every three months until like week 48, and then every six months. And if we find anything, you know, if we see one of these events of brain swelling or a micro hemorrhage, you know, it triggers, you know, there's a whole bunch of decision trees we go through. If it's mild, you know, mild looking on the brain scan on the MRI and you have no symptoms, we can continue to give you the infusions, but we would now start doing MRIs monthly where we wouldn't have done that before to make sure it's not getting worse. If it got worse or you ever had a new symptom, hey, I have a new headache and I've never had headaches before, 
and we saw these findings, we would stop the study drugs. So we'd stop the infusions and you'd just get monthly MRIs and check-ins, clinical check-ins until those symptoms and the imaging findings resolved and went away. And then you could go back on the study drug if you wanted to. So we were, were very you know, careful um, you know, and have rigorous, you know, sort of checks in place to make sure we're, we're, we're administering this safely. And we should be doing that in the clinic too. Once these are, are you know, commercially and clinically available, you know, the, the people prescribing them are going to want to be experts and know what to look for, um, for safety. And one last question for me. They, um, so when do you talk to the patients, like, for example, if the drug is working, is one thing to see the science part, the human interest, the human side, where you know you're t- you you you're having a conversation and you realize that this kind con- well, you know they should be better. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and so I would say at least for the the head study, we're not able to talk about the, that. One of the, the their cognitive outcomes is some composite measure of cognitive tests, like about like five or six cognitive tests that somebody does, and they get a composite composite measure of cognition. That's sort of the primary outcome. They want to see if this study drug, lecanemab, slows the rate of decline on this cognitive, this big cognitive battery that we would do. So because it's, it is double-blinded and it, we're not really able to, to release the scores to those participants, like here's where you started, three months later, here's your score, eight months later, here's your score. We're not able to talk about that. But we do have other you know, what we call observational studies at the ADRU, where we see people for yearly visits and do sort of, you know, cognitive tests and, and physical check-ins. And there we can talk about how people are doing. You know, we can tell them, I don't know if you're on the study drug or not, but you seem to be doing stable. Maybe that's because of the study drug, but though, we that's have, information. We, we have about one, one more minute to go, everybody. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, okay. But yeah, unfortunately and not for this yes. study. And there, there is compensation for every single one of those visits, $40 yes. per visit. We offer free transportation to our offices, and um, we just have to put people at ease. There's a lot of te- all this technical language. I would speak to it at a more um, con- conversational level where people can be put at ease, and we make sure that people understand everything, every step of the way. Um, we, we really take care. But now I just want to close with this is Black History Month, and I just found out over the weekend that the first African-American psychiatrist was on the forefront of Alzheimer's disease. In fact, he worked with Mr. Alzheimer, Alois Mm. Alzheimer in Germany Mm. back in the late 1800s. And so people understood that there there was an African-American involved in the study. Some of the um, research currently underway, he was a part of. His name name? is Dr. Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller. One minute, and Vanessa, your telephone number again? It eight six. It is two zero three. I don't talk myself. Seven six four. Zero three. <laughs> seven six four. Seven six four. Five seven eight six. Two zero three. Seven six four. Five seven eight six. Or two zero three. Seven six four. Eighty one hundred. We'll get you to me or Doctor uh, Doctor Odell or any of the other clinicians here. Harry's going to play the music to sign us off, but Dr. Odell and Vanessa, really thank you for the detail and the explanation and the compassion and the compassion and your your compassion comes really through about the need for this. Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton, as always, good to see you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. As I got another rhyme, another riddle.
rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition. This new edition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah.